Hello and welcome back to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, War. How is everybody? How did these last six weeks go for you? Were you as utterly bereft as I was? Flipping through the calendar, looking at that deadline marked in red, wanting so badly to listen again to that nerd in his basement that you could barely find the strength to face the long days ahead? Or did you forget about it entirely until this episode appeared in your feed, at which point you shrugged and said, huh, oh, yeah, that guy. I guess he's finally back. And then tap play and got on with your commute. Either way, I am happy to have you back. Or welcome you for the first time. If you are new to the show, welcome. You should be fine starting from this point and moving on without listening to Season 1 if you want to do it that way, but I think you'll find more depth and continuity if you go back. But let's take care of some business in the front so that we may party in the back. I have made a few changes to the way I do things around here. Uh, Transcripts of episodes will be posted on the website, darkagespod.com, as before, but I'm making a concerted effort to add some more value to the site So you will find more links within the texts to various relevant, helpful, or amusing things that I find online. And in episodes that demand more of a visual component, there will be images along with the transcripts. I'll continue to post some of those on Instagram or Twitter as before, but there will usually be more on the website. On the more stuffy academic side, I will be putting my references for specific episodes at the end of those transcripts rather than having all of my sources just in a big ugly mishmash that I continually forget to update, though there will continue to be a master list of sources available too. Facebook, Instagram continue to be things that you can join and interact with, and I am also on Twitter, at DarkAgesPod is what you're looking for on there and on Insta. Or you can use the buttons on the website, which is, again, darkagespod.com, and I should stress, not darkagespod.podbean.com. That is the website that came with my hosting, and I do not care for it. Lastly, I have set up a Ko-Fi page. Ko-Fi is a way that you can, if you choose, buy me a coffee. It is, in other words, an online tip jar. Goal is to defray the costs a bit of hosting as well as support my slightly alarming used book habit. To find my page and donate, go to ko-fi.com slash darkagespod or click the link that I will put in the notes for this episode and all the episodes going forward. Absolutely no pressure, of course. I will love you all no matter what, but much appreciation if you do. So... For those of you who are new to the show, now seems like as good a place as any to insert a quick note about the show's title. If you've heard this before, just zone out for a sec. The Dark Ages, as you may know, is a term extremely unfashionable among academic historians, not just on the usual basis that breaking history into distinct defined chunks is unrealistic and artificial. The phrase can carry negative connotations, a judgment on the past, if you will, and it certainly is how it was meant by the Enlightenment historians who came up with it in the first place. The way I mean it, though, is in the sense of darkness making it difficult to see. There are fewer sources for the time between, say, 450 and 900 than there are for the periods before or after. They are dark to us. 
So that's why I used that phrase as the title. Also because I thought you would be much more likely to click play than if it was called the Early Middle Ages Podcast. Professional historians, by and large, are terrible at marketing. Enough blibber and too much blabber. Let's get into this thing. I have two goals for this episode. One, to introduce my plan for this so-called Season 2, and B, to talk about warfare in the early Middle Ages. So that as we move forward and I start talking about various armies knocking the stuffing out of each other, you can have some kind of picture in your mind of what it all would look like. I have to admit I have shown extremely poor discipline and very little self-control in the writing of this episode. There is talk about swords, listeners. Swords and shields and spears. And on the website there will be pictures of same. I was, for an hour at least as I wrote this, once again 12 years old, and I had to go outside and wave a stick around for a while before I could come in and return to the serious historying. So I hope you will indulge me in my incontinence. How does that sound? Actually, that sounded awful. I mean, how does the plan for the episode sound? Okay? I take your silence for enthusiastic consent. The problem for me is, and always has been, that once the Roman Empire went away, the narrative becomes fractured. There is no longer a history of the Roman Empire. There's a history of the Franks, and a history of Britain, and a history of North Africa, and so on and so forth. Trying to do them all at once, in parallel to each other, one episode at a time, this episode over here, that episode over there, obviously isn't the best option, and indeed makes me question the wisdom of starting the podcast in the first place. But it's too late now. So my plan is to do a series of episodes focusing on one place or people and take the story of them from about 476, where we left off, to some spot around 540-550, somewhere close to that that makes sense for their particular narrative. Then I'll move back and do another series on a different country or people for roughly the same period. Hopefully this will keep the narrative threads from getting too muddled, Hopefully it will not be too repetitive, and we can build up a picture of Europe as it transitioned to a post-Roman reality as we go. I've decided after long debates and conversations with myself in the shower and while lying in bed that I will begin at the center, in Italy, and then move on to what will become France, and then see where the wind takes us, though we could very easily sink into the marshes of France and never be seen again. In between these series, I'll insert some thematic rather than narrative episodes as interludes, the bulk of this episode is going to be one of those. I also know that I want to do one on the papacy, and one on the Germanic tradition of heroic legend, and so on. Clear? Maybe? Anyway, that's the plan. Oh, and if you have ideas about the kind of topics you'd like to hear about in this kind of longitudinal way, please let me know. I will almost certainly run out of ideas. I basically already have. And now, at last... The time has come to talk of other things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, and if we have time, maybe even some cabbages and kings. The rest of this episode, ten minutes in, will be what it says on the title, The Domain of Mars, Tyr, and Perun, The Greatest Evil, God Help Us How We Love It, War, and The Making of It. The thematic approach to this means that I'll be casting a wide temporal net, from the end of Roman rule in the West to roughly the reign of Charlemagne in the 8th and 9th centuries, because the general principles of war didn't change too terribly much across the time period. The fundamentals really would hold true for later centuries too, despite changes in armor, technology, and the increasing sophistication of raising armies and paying them. 
At its most basic, until the arrival of firearms, warfare pretty much involved men sticking sharp pieces of metal into other men at extremely uncomfortably close range. Now, the people who wrote down capital H history in the early Middle Ages mostly concerned themselves with what we would call political history, the deeds of kings and chieftains, and the movement of people. While these things are obviously necessarily involve the waging of war, and indeed large swathes of their texts are devoted to the movements and clashes of armies, details that we would be interested in are just about always lacking. If you've been listening from the beginning, you'll remember the description of the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, which I read from Jordanes. He recorded the names and positions of the commanders, a general sense of toing and froing, and an entirely invented speech given by Attila that I think I cut out at the time. It's very stirring and all, but nothing really there for a military historian to hang his tweed coat with elbow patches on. How many of the combatants were cavalry? How many of them were foot? How had they been recruited? Who trained them? What kind of weapons did they carry? What tactics did they actually use? The chroniclers have very little to tell us about these things, because that wasn't their goal. We've, of course, talked about this before. Classical historians approached history as an art. It was a literary endeavor. As the classical world transitioned into the medieval, it also took on a moral dimension. I mean, it always had that, but it wasn't emphasized. History became a tool of moral instruction. Either way, the day-to-day -day social history, the grubby, often unedifying mechanics of it, and even the very kingly art of administration and logistics were way down on the historian's list of priorities. So clearly, then, we have to look elsewhere for the kind of information we're looking for. Archaeology is one place, incidental information can be found in other literature, and probably most exciting, there are a few military manuals surviving. The eastern half of the empire, of course, carried on, and in the 6th century, the Emperor Maurice compiled a book called the Strategicon, or ordered the Strategicon compiled, which contained plenty of information about Byzantine organization and tactics, and most interestingly for us, discussions of various other people's military characteristics and how to fight them. In the west, the classic Latin military manual was De Re Militaris by Vegetius, which was mainly theoretical and obsolete by the time of the fall of the empire. But its shortcomings seem to have been recognized by its audience, judging by the repeated revisions made to it as it was recopied. Low literacy levels among the warrior classes meant that Vegetius only really became widely known later in the Middle Ages, but its preservation demonstrated the intelligentsia's drive, by which I mean the church, to maintain the traditions of the lost empire. By and large, the armies of the states that succeeded the Roman Empire were a continuation of the empire's military forces, not their replacement. Because of the progressive barbarization of the army that had been going on for the last century, and that we've talked about extensively, the Roman army was composed almost entirely of people whose heritage lay beyond the frontiers. We've talked about it, but we haven't really talked much about the why of how that happened, and only very briefly about what the armies looked like. So, even though we killed off the Roman Empire at the end of last season, let's talk a little bit more about it now. This is going to keep happening, by the way. Like a Marvel superhero, the Roman way of doing things is too valuable to ever actually let die. There is an old strand of historiography that puts out the idea that the inflow of Germanic and other foreign soldiers to the Roman army was due to a population problem, that there was just not enough Romans around to keep the muster rolls up to the needed levels. That theory is, to use a technical term, complete woo. 
Even the larger estimates for the total manpower of the Roman military at its height rarely crack 1 million, and the safer bet is between 500 and 700,000. In the later empire, after the reforms of Constantine, that includes both stationary garrison troops and the mobile field armies. With estimates for the empire's total population in the area of 60 to 80 million, that means no more than 5% at the most of the able-bodied male population would have been under arms at any given time. The army's personnel issues weren't a supply problem. They were a motivation problem. The reluctance of the Italian population to serve was noted and commented on in the late Republican period, and it became even more pronounced as time went on. The army operated where it was needed, so along the fortified and volatile limes, or frontiers, especially the Rhine and the Danube, and the ever-shifting Persian frontier in the Far East. The empire thus gradually settled like sediment into a militarized shell surrounding an almost completely demilitarized core. Recruiting efforts at the core were notoriously difficult. Most peasants would run away and hide when the ink recruiters came around, and their bosses, the landlords, helped them do so, hiding workers and lying to officials about the populations of their estates to avoid losing workers and productivity. So recruitment came almost exclusively from the provinces that lay in the semi-permanent war zones like Britannia and Illyricum. When you put it that way, there is a supply problem, since that seriously reduces the size of the recruiting pool. And so the generals and officers turned to the tribes beyond the borders to fill their quotas. Among most of those tribes, bearing arms brought prestige, and leaders were able to buy Roman support for their own maneuvers against their rivals at the cost of a few cohorts of hardy fighters. It became a cycle as these units were brought in, sometimes given land or a share of tax revenue directly, and became self-perpetuating settlements, with most of the male population focused on fighting. The gulf between military and civilian culture widened rapidly, and it didn't take too long for the fighting men to regard those that did not take up arms as second-rate. How exactly armies were supported and paid for at the end of the empire and the time immediately following is a subject of considerable debate among historians, and the absence of source materials means that it's probably always going to be so. The most complete information comes from Italy, probably unsurprisingly. There, the army was allotted a third of the estates to support themselves, but what does that mean? Was one third of the land commandeered by the state to hand out to individual army officers? That doesn't seem like a situation likely to produce peace or harmony. Another possibility is that one-third of the tax revenue was allocated to the military, so a landowner would pay two-thirds of what they normally would to the government and the remaining third directly to the army, or the units specifically assigned to them for support. Possible. Seems cumbersome, but possible. The third option is that fighting men in question were billeted on the landowner and entitled to one-third of the tax revenue going towards maintaining them there. We just don't know. When the Western Imperium disappeared or was withdrawn, it took basically no serious effort for the militarized barbarian leaders to assert their control over the empire's territories, given that they basically already had control anyway, and in most cases the Roman aristocracy was happy to work with the new bosses. Doing so kept them safe, it kept their peasants on the land where they belonged, and often meant a considerably lower tax burden than had previously been the case. Whatever the original arrangement, gradually the military men either bought, inherited, or half-inch land for themselves into direct ownership. Soon these warriors, who already felt a sense of difference and superiority because of their fighting position, could add landowning to their status. 
To me, what we're seeing is the birth of that particularly medieval form of nobility, for whom war and land were the most important, and for many the only important aspect of their lives, and what set them apart and above the rest of the population. They would gather around them other fighting men who would serve as the professional core of their armies. The system grew and transformed over time. Now, these men were professionals, though in a largely moneyless economy of the time, their payment took the form of rights to gather taxes from particular lands or title to the lands itself, and might also include gifts of weapons, clothing, or room and board. These kind of arrangements led to a much more intimate relationship than a simple employer-employee relationship, and loyalty was very important to the honor of both parties. The old Roman nobility, meanwhile, was not necessarily boxed out, though many probably were. Others adapted. Names began to change. In the writings of Gregory of Tours, it's extremely common for one brother of a pair to have a Latin name, the other to have a clearly Germanic one. Usually the former would seek a clerical career, and the latter would go to serve in the army. You could become a Frank or a Goth just by acting like a Frank or a Goth. Ethnicity was functional more than it was genetic. The largely barbarian heritage of the imperial army meant that at least initially most units across Western Europe ran along similar lines, and ethnic variations in administration were less important than you might imagine. Each had their own different traditions and styles of fighting, and there were different degrees of development, but the Western European framework was pretty well established from the beginning. The Franks in particular would be trendsetters throughout most of the early Middle Ages. So getting to brass tacks, so how big were these post-Roman armies? I know it's slightly tiresome hearing me say this over and over, but there is considerable debate. We can't trust written sources, because A, they weren't conducting archival research and usually weren't witnesses to the events they described, B, they often provide us round numbers with biblical or classical symbolism center stage, I mean there's lots of threes, fours, twelves, and multiples of one thousand, and C, they probably would have been ill-equipped to provide account even if they had been present. I feel like I need to explain that last one a little bit. And I swear this is not just an excuse for a personal rambling. Okay, it's a little bit of an excuse for personal rambling. I go to two, three, maybe four Brewers games every baseball season. And in the eighth inning, there's a quiz on the Jumbotron to guess the day's attendance. I, I know other parks do this. I'm just, you know, this is me. Even when I'm sitting in the cheap seats with a view of almost the whole bar ballpark, I get this question wrong every single time, usually by several thousands. My point is, it's difficult to estimate the size of large gatherings. How much harder would it be for someone who spent most of their lives in a community of maybe a couple of hundred? And considerably less for the vast majority of the population. For a major campaign, it's unlikely that anyone really knew exactly how many men mustered, including their own commanders. How many are we? Several thousand. How many are they? More, less, half. Make decisions from there. But most of the organized violence of the early Middle Ages was not in large international campaigns. But most of the organized violence of the early Middle Ages was not in large international campaigns. Border raiding and vendetta wars probably made up the vast majority of armed conflict. It was on a much smaller scale, but a much greater frequency than the broader international kind. The Anglo-Saxon Law Code of Ena defines an army as any assemblage of more than 36 fighting men, which seems tiny to us, but reflects the lived reality far more closely than the writings of clerics far from the action with ideological axes to grind. Violence was more common in the daily run of things than the chroniclers tell us, and it's not like they're a list of tea parties and folk music festivals. 
Rulers did their best to use the law to regulate blood feuds and reduce the frequency of private wars, but in reality there's an element of blood feud through even the highest politics. The most common form of warfare, though, was probably border raiding, which then would provoke counter-raiding, and which could easily snowball into much larger problems in a very brief time. Raiding was motivated by the desire for plunder. The plunder would take various forms, very rarely money. Cattle, food, any kind of luxury goods raiders could get their hands on, and people, either to hold for ransom or sell as slaves. This wasn't just shallow greed. Plunder was shared out among commanders, who then would distribute the wealth down through their own followers. This largesse bound the leaders and their men together in a chain of loyalty that could run very deep, but keeping up the flow of goodies was essential. A lord maintained his position through the distribution of patronage. The men who took part in these raids would have started very young, in their mid-teens probably. By their mid-twenties, most would be well acquainted with the experience of combat and capable of leading others into it. So imagine your high school's varsity football team, but with edged weapons. The dynamics within the warrior cadre were volatile and carried the potential for violence at all times. At every level, men fought and jockeyed for recognition and preferment from those above them, and fierce rivalries were the norm. The Germanic tradition of succession, where any suitable male from the royal family could potentially inherit, meant there was very little sentimentality among noble siblings. Between these rivalries, the generally high concentration of testosterone and the logistical problem of feeding a large gathering of people, it would behoove a commander to get his army moving and out of his territory as quickly as possible after he'd mustered his forces. Better to let them all use all that energy against the enemy than against each other. Or, just as bad, start talking among themselves about who might be more worthy of their loyalty. Speaking of edged weapons, how would all those teenagers have been equipped exactly? Now, personally, a fascination with weaponry is what got me into medieval history in the first place, and I know I'm not alone on that. I also know from my experiences in the comments section of YouTube that there is nothing that nerds on the internet will argue about more ferociously. Now, I am not an expert. Keep that in mind before shouting at me for disappointing you. Also, as we move into this, you're going to want to see pictures. And so I refer you again to the website www.darkagespod.com where you will find images carefully selected for your edification along with the transcript for this episode. The most common weapon in the early medieval arsenal was absolutely and definitely not the sword, no matter how romantic and iconic they may be. I will, of course, come back to swords, but the most common weapon by a wide margin was the spear. Spears appear in early medieval literature as a metonym for war itself, as they do going all the way back to Homer. Spear points are the most common weapon found in graves of the time and come in a wide variety of shapes and functions. Light spears of various lengths for throwing. Lances for mounted warriors, which could be used couched the way we think of with a mounted knight, but also underhand to the side or overhand in a downward stabbing motion. Some shorter spears had long, robust heads, which might have been used to both stab and slash, similar to the pole arms of later eras. As the early Middle Ages progressed, lugs began to appear on the sockets of many spears, these little wing things on the sides. For a very long time, these have been interpreted as devices to prevent the spear from getting stuck in a target, or for hunting to keep a boar from running up the shaft and killing the spear's bearer. The more recent scholarship doubts that interpretation. Here's the first thing nerds are going to shout at me about. For one thing, these lugs are so far down the shaft that the spear would be nearly through a human enemy's body before meeting the lug, which makes the whole prevention of getting it stuck kind of unlikely. Plus, 
as often as not, they are not any wider than the head of the spear they're attached to. Given that the spear was used as a melee weapon, these lugs may have been defensive, designed to catch and deflect opponents' weapons like the crossguard on a sword. It's also possible that they're simply decorative. I will grant that there are absolutely boar-hunting spears with crossguards, but they are large and robust and clearly meant for purpose. While we are discussing themes that will get me in trouble with people, let's move on to axes. Because surely, if we all imagine a warrior of the Dark Ages, we imagine a bearded Viking with his bearded battle axe. And the good news is that yes, the Vikings were enthusiastic users of the battle axe. The bad news is we won't be talking about the Vikings for quite a while on this podcast yet, because they're still 300 years in the future, and the evidence for widespread use of the axe in war in the rest of Europe is scant indeed. The axes that were used were single-handed, so they could be used with a shield, and that limited their reach. We already talked in an earlier episode about the Francisca, the Frank's signature throwing axe. Those are found in Frankish territories pretty frequently, but not nearly as ubiquitous as you might be expecting. But you may find it gratifying to know that the ones that are found are usually found with the top point broken off from use. But the Francisca, being a close-range, single-use projectile, could never have been a primary weapon. And so just to close the hatch on axes also... No double-headed axe from the early Middle Ages has ever been found in Western or Northern Europe. Sorry. More basic than the axe, and probably the oldest human weapon of war, the club, along with its marginally more evolved cousin, the mace, remained an option, even for the proudest warrior. A big, heavy stick, you may remember way back, was the weapon favored by the Goths for destroying a whole Roman legion in Adrianople and its obvious utility kept in circulation all the way to the Norman invasion of England and beyond. The Bayeux Tapestry depicts the most reverend and holy Bishop Odo of Bayeux with a big honking stick at the Battle of Hastings. His half-brother, the Conqueror himself, also wields one. Everyone's favorite weapon, of course, and the one that gets all the press, is the sword. Swords of our period seem mainly to have been modeled on the Roman cavalry sword, the Spatha, Long, straight, double-edged, swords in this form were designed for slashing and required a fair amount of room to use. The gladius, the short sword of the legions, had fallen out of favor in the 3rd century, as it was adapted primarily to close-order fighting, and the tight legionary formations had become obsolete as the Romans turned their attention to more mobile cavalry armies. The early medieval evolution of the Spatha combined it with the Germanic patterns through distinct stages, passing through swords of the Migration period to those made by Merovingian smiths in the 8th century to culminate in what is usually called the Viking sword. But more properly, it should be called the Carolingian pattern, as the shape was well established in the Frankish Empire by the time the Norse adapted it and made it their own. Straight, with a mostly rounded tip, these blades were all primarily slashers. Early versions were smooth-bladed, but as time went on, smiths incorporated a fuller in the blade to reduce weight. That means a little a shallow groove, and to improve the blade's strength. Grips were generally short, in the neighborhood of four inches or so, so single-hand use only. The crossguard was one of the innovations from the Spatha. Early ones don't have one, and were usually straight in the earlier part of the period. But fashions changed from place to place and time to time. Curved guards were very popular in Britain and Scandinavia later on. The most variation between periods is seen in the pommels, the counterweight on the handle. Earliest swords commonly sport flattened pyramid-like pommels, later to be joined by simple discs, 
the Brazil nut, oblong shape, and the three or five lobes of the classic Viking sword. The giving and receiving of swords was a highly significant ritual, and a special class of early swords called ring swords give historians something to puzzle about. These particular swords have holes in their pommels with a ring passed through them. They're usually high quality and decorated, but they are found in multiple contexts and cultures, and their significance remains uncertain. The most significant thing about the sword, though, was its cost. Fair warning, I am about to spend some time talking about metallurgy in some detail, so if that kind of thing isn't your bag, skip ahead about three minutes or so. Or think of this as training for a time when I inevitably go off about textile manufacture later on. The furnaces that were used to produce iron from iron ore in our period are called bloomeries, and they don't get hot enough to truly melt the iron. Instead, the gases produced by burning charcoal reduce the iron molecules and separate them from its ore. These particles fall to the bottom of the furnace and collect, along with melted slag, to form the bloom, or sponge iron. That sponge iron is then collected from the bottom of the bloomery and beaten while still hot with very large hammers to drive out the melted slag and produce forgeable iron ingots or bars. European bloomeries in the post-Roman period could produce somewhere between 5 and 20 kilograms of iron at a time, which doesn't sound like a lot, because it isn't. Much later, the adoption of the water wheel to run bellows would increase the capacity of bloomeries until they were replaced by blast furnaces, but that would be a 13th century development, very far in the future for us. Once the iron was produced, smiths would set about building a sword, and I use the word building deliberately. The quality of the iron was such that it couldn't simply be pounded into a flat blade shape, at least not if you wanted it to last more than a few seconds in combat. In order to achieve the necessary toughness, along with the necessary flexibility, sword blades were pattern-welded. Specific techniques varied from place to place, but let's take the Frankish process as an example. The smith would take two or three rods of iron and twist them together into a larger rod. He would repeat that two or three more times, so he has three twisted rods. He would then lay them together with untwisted rods on the outsides, so it goes plain rod, three twisted rods, plain rod, and then forge weld all five of them together. Forge welding is exactly what you think it is. Separate pieces are heated and then hammered together. Once the bars were welded, the whole thing could be flattened to the desired thickness and shape and then polished and sharpened. Some smiths also folded the blade at this point and hammered it flat again a few times to produce more layers, sometimes over a thousand. These layers produce wavy patterns on the blade, hence pattern welding. As an aside, these kind of pattern blades are sometimes called Damascus steel, but that's incorrect. There are superficial similarities, but true Damascus steel was made from much higher quality crucible steel, coming from India and Sri Lanka, and then imported into the Middle East, where it was made into the famous blades. It could also refer to a Chicago improv troupe from the early 2010s, and how is that for a niche reference? The blade, manufactured by our blacksmith, would have a narrow tang at the end of it, a long thin projection at the blunt end, where the grip of wood or sometimes bone would be fitted, along with the cross guard and the pommel. Now all of this is obviously time consuming and requires considerable skill, and so f swords were ferociously expensive. Hand forged ones still are, of course, but they were even more so in the Middle Ages. The Romans had maintained factories that produced weapons for their armies, but as but as these became less and less viable, production efficiency declined, and so costs rose. The expense meant that they were weapons of the nobility, 
available only to the upper echelons and came to be associated with nobility itself. But that association took time and only really became clear from the 6th century onward. Okay, so much for offense. What about defense? Shields. Shields were almost universally round, sometimes oval, and made of wood. At the center of the circle would be a hole with a grip placed across it and then covered with a metal dome called a boss. The shield bosses in most of our time periods were conical in shape, many of them with a peened rod projecting at the center, designed to catch enemy weapons, and it could also be used to punch. In spite of what you may have in mind, most shields were not edged in iron banding, though they may have been bound with leather. Shields were brightly painted, but ultimately considered disposable. The shattering of shields, or the gradual whittling down of them in a long fight, is a common theme in descriptions of battles. Armor was mainly male or lamellar. I assume most of you know what chainmail is. Lamellar armor consists of small squares or rectangular plates of metal sewn together at the edges with wire or leather. It was easier to produce than mail, and therefore cheaper, but also less versatile. Helmets appear to have been fairly common, at least among the professional fighters, and they all descended from the late Roman ridge helmet. These new helmets were called Spangenhelms, strap helmets in German, because of their construction. Three to six plates were riveted to metal straps to produce a cone shape, usually with a nose guard, and sometimes including cheek or ear flaps and a male aventail in the back to cover the neck. Some later helmets add the distinctive Viking goggles around the eyes. The added protection provided by these was minimal, but it did make the wearer more intimidating, which was probably the point. Toward the end of our period, as metalworking skill increased, the Spangen helm was replaced by a similarly shaped helmet made from a single piece of steel, which eliminated the weak points of the riveted construction. All of this talk of armor applies to the specialists, the full-time warriors who will evolve into knights and nobles. If the local militia levies ever had to be called out, they would be in much worse shape protection-wise. Maybe quilted leather or canvas if they are lucky. And that's the thing about these armies. There is a vast gulf in equipment, and especially in training, between the professional warrior class and the general population. Judging by chroniclers' comments, when the militia was called out, they could be more dangerous to themselves than to any enemy. The warrior's specialized role and a lifetime spent at arms, and the exposure to carnage, made them pretty much unbeatable by peasants in anything other than overwhelming numbers, and it would remain that way into the high Middle Ages, around the 14th century. The actual details of training fighting men are very hard to come by indeed. Young men, boys, really, sought service in the household of some local strongman, and while in that house he would train with other men in a wide range of martial skills, and he would have been comfortable with just about any weapon he laid his hands on including the bow. There was at this stage no snobbery around archery as a tactic, and everyone could shoot. The most important and most loved component of military training was, though, and you know I'm going to say it, say it with me, hunting. The hunt brought together so many elements that would be important on the battlefield, it is no wonder it would be the noble pastime par excellence throughout the Middle Ages and beyond. While hunting, a young warrior would learn to make decisions under pressure, spend long days in the saddle, and handle his horse with confidence and grace. Most importantly, though, he would learn to work and communicate well with the other men in the household. He would handle spears, bows, and swords, and blood them, and he could and did face danger head-on. This isn't sitting in a tree with a rifle. The European boar was an adversary fully capable of maiming or killing its pursuers, as were the bears and wolves that sometimes were the targets. Even a deer can be dangerous, especially when wounded. 
you may have noticed a lot of them have spiky things on their heads, and hooves are sharp and can be well aimed. There were also the more mundane dangers of the chase, chief among them falls and kicks from horses, and the friendly fire of your companions. It was a fellow huntsman's arrow that killed William Rufus, son of William the Conqueror, in 1100, and he's just the most famous example. Training and hunting prepared a warrior for battle, but there was no substitute for experience, and well-seasoned fighting men were highly valued. The chaos of the early medieval battle is captured thoroughly in an Anglo-Saxon poem of the 10th century called the Battle of Malden. The poem records a real battle between Vikings and the army of an Anglo-Saxon earl named Berthnoth in the summer of 991. The poem tells of the Anglo-Saxons' defeat in stirring and heroic terms, something the English have always been good at. I toyed with the idea of learning to read part of it in Old English, but chickened out. So I will link to someone competent reading it, and instead here is an excerpt from a translation by Jonathan Glenn, with some light editing by me for readability. Couple of vocabulary notes. The Ferd is the Anglo-Saxon army, made up of free men and paid fighters, and the Burney is a short male shirt with short sleeves. Then the sea warrior hurled a southern spear so that the warrior's lord was wounded. He shoved then with shield so the shaft burst, the spear broke and sprang back. Enraged was that warrior, with spear he stung the proud viking who gave him the wound. Wise was that furred warrior, he let his spear wade through the youth's neck, his hand guided it so it reached life in the ravager. Then he another speedily shot so that the burney burst. He was wounded in breast through the ring-locked mail, in him at heart stood poison point. The earl was the blither, the brave man laughed then, and said thanks to fate for the day-work God had given him. Then a certain warrior let his hand dart fly so that it went forth through that noble, Aethelred's thane. By his side stood an ungrown youth, the l a lad in the battle, Wolfstan's son, Wolfmare the young, who full valiantly drew from the man the bloody spear. He let tempered shaft fare back again, the point sank in, so he on earth lay who had his lord so grievously reached. An armed man then went to the earl. He wished to fetch the wealth of that warrior, spoil and rings, and adorned sword. Regardless of what we might think of the early medieval warrior's outlook, his disdain for the peasantry, his casual violence, we have to admit and admire at least a little his personal bravery. The death he faced whenever he took the field would be painful, ugly, and could arrive in an instant. From an early age, fighters would have become used to witnessing a range of mutilations and death personally and regularly. The wounds found in battlefield graveyards bear grim witness to the carnage. Warning. Incoming descriptions of carnage. I won't linger, so you only need to skip ahead about a minute if you want to. A massacre at Visby left one such mass burial in Sweden. It's from 1361, so it's obviously later than our period, but the manner of death is the same. One skull has a deep gash below the eyes, the cheekbones broken and crushed and the nose neatly bisected. Another skull, from the later Battle of Towton in England, was slashed from left to right, from temple to palate, and was nearly split in half. Horrifying as those deaths might have been to witness, they were at least probably quick for their victims. A man whose abdomen was punctured by an arrow or sword point would most likely linger in agony for days until sepsis finished him off. What the psychological effects of such things, witnessing them, being threatened with them, and inflicting them on others, we can only guess. Responses to trauma are to some degree mediated by culture, and it's possible, even probable, that the men of Uruk or Charlemagne's court slept like babies. 
Lord knows they were getting enough exercise. The warrior's reputation, which was his greatest personal asset, was based on his bravery and his ability to stand in the face of such things. It was more broadly important than just individual pride or renown. The stress of battle was such that once panic set in in one part of the army, it would quickly spread, and fleeing armies would quickly become massacred armies. The ability to stoutly hold one's place in line while carnage unfolded around you was essential not only for the survival of the individual, but potentially the survival of the entire unit. Vegetius noted in De Re Militari that, quote, "...troops that have never been in action or have not been for some time used to such spectacles, are greatly shocked at the sight of the wounded and dying, and the impressions of fear they receive dispose them rather to fly than to fight. End quote. That was probably the biggest reason militia levies were so unreliable and generally despised. They simply weren't used to the scale of the bloodshed, and were understandably much more likely to flee and endanger the entire army. We can't really blame them. Fighting wasn't in their job description. The whole purpose of a full-time fighting class was to protect non-combatants, the farmers, feh, and the church. The amount of feh directed that way would vary on an individual basis. Unfortunately, that basic structure led, logically, to the most common strategy in large-scale warfare and what was probably the most generally experienced facet of war by the populace at large, wasting. So suppose you're a local lord, strongman. You have your war band around you, a few dozen men full-time, and can put out word for another couple hundred when needs be. You've gotten into a debate with your neighbor lord, and the utensils have been taken out. That neighboring lord, rather than attack you directly, will gather his men and start moving through your territory, sacking each and every village along the way. If this was a raid, he would take what he wanted and drive off the animals. But this is more serious. His men don't drive the animals off. They slaughter them and lead them to rot. They burn the crops and the villages, torture, murder, rape, anyone who withholds information, or really whoever they feel like. You, as the overlord, have a responsibility to these people. It is a reciprocal relationship, no matter how little you think of them. You need them to keep you and your men fed. If an enemy can burn and murder his way across your territory without challenge, then what good are you? The peasantry, and more catastrophically, for your reputation, the abbeys, might very well decide to switch sides. At least it would make the burning stop. As always, it was the common people who suffered more when princes went to war. Plus a change, plus a la même chose. Wasting was the direct outgrowth of the social structure and would remain more or less standard practice well into the modern age. The goal in the Middle Ages was either to force defection or, if you were confident, to provoke the opponent to battle. Battles were risky, but they were more common in the Dark Ages than they would be later on as castles developed and the arts of siege warfare were refined. I feel like I could talk much more about all of this, and I probably will along the way. There's still the logistical problems of an army, feeding them, moving them, maintaining morale. But I think that's enough for today. It will probably come up in the course of later episodes anyway, so just be prepared for digressions, I suppose. Next time we'll be back into the story, right where we left off with the German mercenary commander Odoacer in control of Italy. And whatever will he do with it? Thank you all for listening. Don't forget to check the website, darkagespod.com, for transcripts of episodes as well as images and helpful links. I'll put some pictures up on Instagram at darkagespod, but the larger galleries will be on the website. Also, if you're feeling froggy, I don't know where I picked that phrase up, but I like it, 
and would like to make a donation toward the continued existence of the Dark Ages podcast, you can do so at ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash darkagespod, or click the link in the episode description. Not expected, of course, but always appreciated. That's all for now. Until next time, take care. <laughs>